Welcome back to the Thrive Theology Podcast. Thank you so much for joining in. Um, We love discussing theology because it helps you to live thoughtfully as a Christian. We believe that every Christian is called to be a theologian because theology isn't just knowing about God, but knowing his heart. So last time we introduced our series on soteriology, which if you don't remember, is the study of salvation. We talked about God saving his people in history. We talked about redemption, justification, baptismal regeneration, decisional regeneration. Then we talked about sanctification and propitiation. One of the things that Emily and I both feel strongly about um, because we've done our own research is that Christianity is different and it's true. And one of the things that makes it different is its view of salvation. C.S. Lewis also agreed with this. Um, He says that grace is the defining difference between Christianity and other belief systems. The fact that God would reconcile himself to his people and pay the price himself in order to do so is incredible, and that it's a free gift to anyone who asks. This episode, we're going to talk about atonement theories, the Calvinism, Arminianism issues. We're going to talk about repentance and salvation. We might even get into um, being a born-again Christian and what that means. We're excited for you to join along with us, and let's get started. So let's jump into some atonement theories. We did do a podcast episode back in June of 2020 all about atonement theories, both biblical atonement theories and unbiblical atonement theories. So if you want to do a deep dive into atonement theories, we highly recommend that you check out that episode. It's episode number 65, and it's called Penal Substitution, Christus Victor, and Other Atonement Theories. Um, For now, we're going to just do a quick overview of some of the two popular atonement theories. The first is substitutionary atonement. This is um, also called PSA or penal substitutionary atonement, um, or it can also be called vicarious atonement. So this is where the atonement emphasis is placed on the fact that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us. So God suffered the death, punishment, and curse of fallen humanity in our place. The result is that Christ stands in man's place before the throne of God to intercede for us and that we are made righteous by Christ's righteousness. The term Christus Victor is the other atonement theory that we're going to touch on, and this is Latin for Christ the Conqueror. This was coined by Gustav Allen in 1931. Christus Victor states that, quote, the work of Christ is first and foremost a victory over the powers which hold mankind in bondage, sin, death, and the devil. So substitutionary atonement focuses on the fact that Christ died in our place and took our place and took on the wrath of God so that we didn't have to, while Christus Victor focuses on the aspect of the cross where Christ was victorious over sin and death and defeated death in his resurrection. The After Class podcast did a great series on the different atonement theories, and they went far more in depth than we did. And they discussed atonement theories that we did not discuss in our episode as well. We will link this series in our show notes if you want to check it out. They talk about like the ransom atonement theory and some other ones as well. I think they had like five or seven different atonement theories they went through. And like I said, we'll link that in the show notes if you want to check it out. 
Next, we are going to move into Calvinism versus Arminianism. Um, the reason why this is important for us to discuss in this series, even though we've done two other episodes on it, is because one of the defining difference between these two ideas is all circled around salvation and soteriology. We talked in detail about Calvinist beliefs in episode 47 and Arminian beliefs in episode 79. To begin with, I would like to give you a quick definition of two words that will come up in these next two views. The first is election or the doctrine of election. This is the understanding that God chooses those who will be saved. It's specifically referring to those who will be saved. The second is predestination. This is where God chooses what they will do or where their destiny is, and this is chosen beforehand. In the Calvinist view, God elects some people for salvation based on nothing about that person specifically. He regenerates that person, and they are unable to resist his grace and so respond with the gift of faith that he gives them. Faith is a gift from God. It is not a result of a person's decision. This is also known as the doctrine of monergism, which means one person doing all of the work. So the idea is that God is the one who is doing all of the work of salvation from beginning to end. There is also the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace. This is the fact that the believer has one choice after regeneration, and that choice is belief and faith. God also works these things out in the person through his divine sovereignty. James White is a prominent Calvinist. Um, he has Alpha and Omega Ministries, and I wanted to see what their statement of faith regarding the sovereignty of God um, would say, and so I've actually put it in here for you to hear. It says, We believe that God, in his sovereign grace and mercy, regenerates sinful men by the power of the Holy Spirit, not by any action of their own, bringing them to new life. God grants to them the gifts of faith and repentance which they then exercise by believing in Christ and turning from their sins in love for God. As a result of this faith, based upon the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, God justifies or makes righteous the one who believes. God's gift of faith and the continuing work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the elect results in good works. These good works flow from the true saving faith— they are a necessary result of salvation, but are not considered necessary to the gaining of justification, which is by God's grace through faith alone, so that no man can boast. There is a whole deep dive you can do on Calvinist beliefs about salvation. Um, we didn't necessarily want to take up a large chunk of this series with doing that deep dive, um, because there are a lot of other people who've done that deep dive who you can go watch their content. One of the things to understand with a Calvinist view is that in terms of um, faith, which would be the person's belief and trust in God, that if that person decides to do that of their own free will, that would be considered a work. And if you consider faith to be a work, then that person cannot be doing so of their own free will um, they have to be doing it based on God's sovereign will. So he has to be causing them that faith or gifting them with that faith. It basically goes around to free will, which we've done a whole other episode on free will and open theism and other views so, um, that go with that doctrine. 
you can go ahead and listen to that one um, if you would like. We'll put the link in the end, the end of the episode for you. Arminian view of salvation or soteriology is that God does all the work of calling the person. The person responds to God's call either with faith or rejecting God, and God regenerates the person, and then they are a believer. You may be wondering how Arminians view predestination if they don't believe predestination is the same as Calvinists. Arminians would say that God chooses those who he knows will respond to the gospel in faith. God still does all the work in salvation of the believer. Humans, however, still have the option to either accept or reject God's offer of salvation. To achieve this, Arminians believe in something called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is grace which enables the person to respond to God's love or reject it. So it's kind of this in-between grace that God extends to the person um, instead of regenerating them before salvation, it's this grace that God extends to the person until they make a decision to either accept or reject Christ. The main difference between this view and the Calvinist view is that humans have free will. They are, while God's grace enables the believer to respond to the gospel, the believer has the ultimate choice to either accept or reject God's offer of salvation. Um, this would be the difference that the per- that the believer, when they believe the having faith, saving faith in Christ, that the belief itself, the faith itself, is not a work. Um, and we can see this in various different verses where faith is not considered a work um, in the Bible. Um, Arminians would also have a bit of an issue with a lo- some of the Calvinist doctrines of double predestination, which would be God choosing certain people from eternity past for salvation and some for damnation, eternal damnation, punishment of their sins. This is a rather difficult um, doctrine to accept for many people, um, but Calvinists would hold to it rather strictly. Um, and it seems to be that this, if you go super hyper-Calvinist with some of these views, they can cause a lot of issues with um, trusting in your own salvation, the assurance of one's salvation, um, as well as missionary work. All right, let's take some time now to talk about repentance and how that works with salvation. So salvation um, necessitates repentance. Repentance is 100% necessary for salvation. The Hebrew word shuv means to change direction, to change your mind. And that is what we translate as repentance. Biblical repentance is changing your mind about sin, turning away from it, and accepting the truth about Jesus Christ and adopting God's view of sin, that it is um, wicked, evil, and um, kills our souls and keeps us away from God. So one of the steps of salvation is believing in Jesus and accepting his lordship over your life. And one of the other steps is turning away from your old allegiance, um, which is to sin by default. This is so important because our sin is what separates us from God, and it's what Jesus died to defeat. 
A person could not say that their sins were totally fine and accept Jesus' truth at the same time. That just isn't possible. If you accept the truth of God, you have to accept also um, what he says about sin. Otherwise, you're not fully accepting his truth. The New Testament is full of God and his representatives calling for people to repent and believe and be baptized later on in the New Testament. God grants the believer repentance that leads to salvation. John chapter 6, verse 44 says, um, is where Jesus is speaking, and it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis writes, You would not have been calling to me if I had not been calling to you. And that's Aslan speaking, who represents um, God and Jesus in the books. Acts chapter 5, verse 31 says, God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And Acts chapter 11, verse 18 says, Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, how could I possibly hinder God? When they heard this, they became silent. Then they glorified God, saying, So God has granted repentance resulting in life even to the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 26, verse 20, we see that repentance should result in a change of actions. It says, First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. So here and throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, we see that if somebody claims to have repented, but their life and actions don't actually change to reflect their new pattern of thinking of righteousness and following God's law, that repentance isn't genuine. Repentance has to be displayed by our works and deeds. We're now going to talk about some of the different ways that salvation has made its way into the cultural um, language. Um, one of the one of those phrases is a born again Christian. So we're going to do some Bible work, and then we're going to share some of church history around this concept. So this comes from Jesus's conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter three. John chapter three verses three through seven say this. I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. So some background here. Nicodemus is a teacher of teachers. And he wants to meet with Jesus to talk. Jesus responds to his opening statement with a deeply theological statement that goes over Nicodemus's head. Jesus, the son of God, is brilliant and has been steeped in both the Hebrew scriptures and the father's presence. So he's pretty much thinking on a whole other level. 
Now, Nicodemus has spent his life learning, discussing, and parsing out the Tanakh, um, or the Hebrew scriptures, debating it with other teachers and scholars, and he is now conversing with the true teacher, the true master rabbi. That's what paints this whole story with layers of depth. Now, when Jesus talks about being born again, Nicodemus could have remembered different times in the Hebrew scriptures that God uses rebirth language and imagery. The first is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 30, which says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul, so that you will live. Now, in the Hebrew world, the heart was the Old Testament way of referring to a person's self. We would say soul or spirit. God is using the language of a fundamental change carried out by God to make a deeper, more true relationship with God possible doing away with the sinful nature nature by means of cutting it off. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25b through 27, it says this, I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Again, God is using the word heart to refer to a person's essential being, as well as a new spirit, all for making a right relationship with God possible. Now notice here that God is the one who is doing these things for humans. John chapter 1 verses 12 to 13 show how we become children of God through the second birth, or spiritual children of Abraham. It says, He gave them the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, shows us that God is the one who causes and completes the second birth, and that it's by his will and might that we can be born again. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And finally, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, shows us that the new birth results in a new creation and that the person is something different and new in the spiritual sense. And this is probably a verse you've all heard. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So in the same way as Christ dying and being raised to new life, baptism is a symbol of dying to the old life and its ways and being made alive in Christ. Of course, it is not the act of baptism that marks this rebirth, as we discussed earlier. It's simply a symbol and picture of the spiritual truth that occurs upon the moment of a person's conversion. The term born-again Christian has been used in society to refer to an adult who has experienced a conversion or a commitment to Christ in a deeper way. It was first used by groups outside of the mainstream Protestant circles who believed that the conversion experience was necessary to be a Christian. This would be rather than just infant baptism and church membership. During the years Billy Graham preached, it became a rallying message for people of all denominations to become true Christians, not just members of a church, but people regenerated by the Spirit. The term also took on more political connotations during the 1970s, and on into the 80s as a presidential candidate, Jimmy Carter used it to describe his own experience and Christian identity. 
It continued to gain use in right-wing political circles, eventually becoming a shorthand way of explaining one's religious beliefs and political standing, which would be evangelical, Bible-believing conservative. The term was later put aside because of concerns that it had lost some of its meaning because it was used so often, and while you still hear it quite often in modern culture, it doesn't have the same prolific nature. Um, I would think that at this point in American political circles, the term evangelical would have um, replaced it in, in what it's trying to describe. So um, you can even have someone who would be a born-again Catholic. It would be a person who grew up Catholic who had a deeper commitment to Christ and had this experience of becoming born again, and they would say that they are. In fact, if you watch The Chosen, the actor playing Jesus would consider himself to be a born-again Catholic. So it's not specific to Protestant circles or even evangelical circles, although that's where it's gained its popularity. So we are going to end episode two in this series right here. Um, Stay tuned for next week. We're going to be wrapping up our discussion on soteriology. We're going to discuss in that episode the history of altar calls, which is really interesting. We're going to talk about the phrase um, or the idea of asking Jesus into your heart um, and why this can be good, but also maybe some cautions when using this phrase. We're going to discuss whether or not people can be beyond salvation, and we're going to also be talking about if somebody can lose their salvation. So come back next week. We're going to be discussing all of those other issues that are probably things that you've thought about or at least phrases that you've heard, experiences you maybe can relate to um, if you've been raised in the church. And yeah, we're really looking forward to that and summarizing this series. So we will have our recommended resources for you in the show notes as usual, and we will chat with you next week. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.